Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode two of the Rational Policy Podcast. I am your host, Mike Cote. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm back after a hiatus. Uh, I was on a trip to Scotland, which I'll be writing about in the coming weeks, about all the historical sites and just the amazing place that it is. I uh, definitely would recommend that you visit. It's a wonderful, wonderful place. And uh, I left, actually, Scotland just before one of the most uh, important news events, you know, in the past several years, at least in terms of the overall historical importance, uh, occurred. And that was the unfortunate uh, death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II of the United Kingdom. Uh, Queen Elizabeth is really going to be the topic of today's podcast. We'll be talking about her as a person, uh, her death, what it means to the monarchy and state of the United Kingdom, and then I'll be talking about all the reactions to her death, mostly focusing on the absurd negative ones that were very prevalent and prominent online and in our media, uh, and I'll be talking about why those were really ill-informed, ahistorical, and often very misleading about how people actually feel and felt about Queen Elizabeth uh, in the various countries that used to be part of the British Empire. But first, it's most important really to kind of talk about the woman herself, her life, and how important she was to Britain and many other countries and peoples around the world. Uh, She was a constitutional monarch and head of state for the UK, as well as for several other countries. More on that later. Uh, She came into power in 1952. So this is her 70th year on the throne, her Platinum Jubilee. Uh, There were major celebrations, if you remember, back uh, earlier this year. And uh, she passed away at age 96, so a very, very long life. Life well lived. Served in World War II as a mechanic. Um, She worked very hard all the time for the people of the United Kingdom. And she seemed to be a very, very good woman from everything I've read and heard about her as a person. Seemed to be someone who had a really good uh, understanding of what her job is and could be and how she could really take the monarchy, which was something that had been around for hundreds of years, uh, if not thousands, depending on how far you would like to go back into British history and which kings you think fit in the chronology. But she was someone who really was queen in a time of reinvention for Britain and for the world. Coming into power in 1952, uh, just a few years after the Second World War ended, she really had the task of keeping her country together uh, while the empire fell apart and trying to keep a regime, the monarchy, alive. Uh, Something that seemed kind of, you know, pre-modern in a way. Uh, Something that was out of time and out of place in the 20th century. An era of increasing democracy and republicanism around the world. In many ways, the queen herself was a link to a lost past, one that was full of duty, honor, uh, people who would put their country over their immediate personal ambition. Uh, And that's maybe a rose-tinted view of much of prior history, Uh, but it's undeniable that Western culture, especially British culture, American culture, has lost something of that sense of duty and responsibility. Uh, to the collective and to the nation uh, that had previously characterized much of our culture. And that civilizational loss uh, really brings to mind the end of the First World War, 
uh, the ancien regime, the previous sort of civilization or culture uh, that existed before the Great War, basically that of the 19th century of classical liberalism, of uh, civilizational confidence, of duty, of honor, of responsibility, uh, paternalism, many would say, that would be critics of that culture. Much of that was inherent and inbred in the higher social classes of most of continental Europe as well as the United Kingdom. And unfortunately, those men perished by the millions on the battlefields of the First World War, uh, whether that was in Belgium or East, uh, in Eastern Europe, or in Southern Europe in the Alps, or at the Dardanelles Straits. With the death of that generation really came the total change in the way that British culture and European culture worked. Uh, some would say the birth of modernism as a culture itself. And uh, Modris Eckstein's has an excellent book called The Rites of Spring, uh, which is basically a meditation on this very subject about how the pre-World War I culture was really erased uh, by the war itself and evolved into the modern culture that would characterize the totalitarianisms of the 20th century as well as the incredible innovations and avant-garde societal progress. But what happened, really, with Queen Elizabeth is that she was a throwback to that earlier era, someone who really understood what her responsibility was as a royal. Uh, monarchies also were killed en masse at the end of the First World War. The British monarchy obviously survived that, as did the British Empire, given that they were on the winning side. But that wasn't something that really felt like it was in place in the 20th century. There could have been many different times where the monarchy could have fallen, and Britain could have become a republic. After the death of his father, uh, Edward VIII became king in 1936, and ended up having to abdicate later that year, uh, largely because he was interested in marrying Wallace Simpson, an American twice-divorced woman uh, who was not seen as fit to be the queen consort. Britain did dodge a bullet on that after the abdication, given that Edward was uh, pretty heavily Nazi-sympathized, uh, which is not great. Uh, so he was succeeded uh, by another George, George VI. George VI was Edward's younger brother, and was thus expected to rule for quite some time. He was not too old when he took the throne. Uh, he was the one made famous by, at least here in the United States, by the movie The King's Speech. Uh, someone who was the leader during World War II, with Winston Churchill, obviously, as his prime minister. Uh, but he passed unexpectedly in 1952, making his daughter, Elizabeth, the monarch. Whether it was his death or the abdication of his older brother uh, earlier in that, that reign, uh, the monarchy could have fallen at any point in time. It was not guaranteed that it would survive that sort of tumult. Same thing with respect to, much, much later on, uh, Charles and Diana's divorce and their contentious issues thereafter. But Queen Elizabeth, coming to the stage as a young woman at age of 26, was always there to do her job, and that was the most important thing about her. The, the word that I wrote about in my obituary of the Queen, which you can find over at rationalpolicy.com, was duty. Duty was really the watchword for her, and you know that really bolsters her link to a previous era, given that the fact of that 19th century culture was all about duty. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, one of my favorite poets, who wrote very often in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, 
about various things within the British Empire, wrote a lot about duty and responsibility to both the people that you rule over as imperial leaders, to yourself, and to your fellow man. Queen Elizabeth really embodied that word. She was someone who had a tireless schedule. She went around talking to everybody that she could and really visited various countries, uh, tried to hold together the Commonwealth of Nations, which was basically the successor to the British Empire, something I will talk about a bit later on. And she was someone who really never complained. She would go out and do what she needed to do and really not make it about herself. And as someone who was a monarch at a time when the monarchy had very little power, that was something that really set her apart and made her beloved by the people who were her quote-unquote subjects. The queen's real sense of duty can be seen in the last week of her life, just days before she passed. She was standing at Balmoral, her Scottish estate, and swearing in the new prime minister of the United Kingdom, Liz Truss. Doing that only a few days before you die, probably knowing that you're quite ill, uh, is the embodiment of one's duty. And it was impressive to see, to be honest with you. Uh, there's not really many people alive today that have that same gravitas, that have that same sense of responsibility, that have that same sense of sacrifice, despite the fact that she was obviously one of the richest people in the country. A quote from Queen Elizabeth, then Princess Elizabeth, on her 21st birthday when she gave a televised speech, really did speak to this sense of sacrifice and of duty. Uh, she said, quote, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong, end quote. That really does sum her up, and the fact that she said that when she was 21 years old, the fact that she lived it until she was 96 years old, really does speak to someone who had a consistency of character, and someone who took what she was born into, something she did not choose, seriously as a responsibility. Looking to the future, we're not really sure how King Charles III will end up being as a monarch, how long he'll reign, he's in his 70s already or really what he'll be like, how long the king will actually be the king, whether it's because he passes or because the monarchy ceases to exist as an institution. It's facing some of the highest and strongest headwinds it has in hundreds of years. There's a Republican impulse that's generally pretty consistent around the world. You don't see many constitutional monarchies these days, although we do have several, especially in Europe, where it's more of a, an artifact of previous governments than anything else. There's also various issues with drama within the royal family. Uh, obviously, we know a lot about Harry and Meghan and that whole saga, which uh, I really am not interested in talking about. But clearly, there's a lot of uh, drama and issues there that could cause a loss of prestige for the royal family. And then, obviously, something I'll talk a lot about later on in this podcast, the complete focus, myopia, basically, uh, of only seeing monarchy, especially the British monarchy, and the history of imperialism and colonialism in the past as uh, the most evil, genocidal, brutal thing that has ever happened uh, and will ever happen in the history of humanity. And that's something that I think is an impulse is completely wrong. But obviously that's something that is becoming much more popular in academia and media and is 
gaining, uh, gaining some adherence, especially among the younger set. So all these things are pushing against the British monarchy as being an institution that lasts into the future. Uh, and on a lighter note, King Charles is King Charles III. Uh, his two namesake predecessors, Charles I and II, uh, Stuart kings, were not necessarily well-liked. Uh, Charles I was beheaded and replaced by Oliver Cromwell as Lord Protector of the Realm. And later on, after Cromwell's death, his son, Charles II, uh, was brought back over from France to become the monarch. And he basically made all the same mistakes that his father did. Uh, but he wasn't beheaded for his efforts. It just happened to be that his successor uh, was kicked out of the country for his daughter, uh, Mary, of the famous William and Mary. So, not exactly an auspicious name for a new monarch, especially one with as troubled a past as Charles, but we do wish him luck. I do have one story related to this from our trip to Scotland. When we were up near Thurso, which is all the way at the tippy-top of the island of Britain, almost the farthest north place, uh, John O'Groats just to the east is the farthest north, we went to a castle called the Castle of May, which was the residence of the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth's mother, that is, uh, until her death in 2001. And this castle was really, really beautiful. The gardens were amazing, a walled garden, um, absolutely spectacular. It took so many pictures. You can see them on my Twitter, uh, at Rational Policy, R-A-T-L Policy. But basically, one of the coolest things about it was that it was really a home. We were not allowed to take photos inside, unfortunately, uh, but it really did feel like it was lived in. It was not a presentation castle, so to speak. And the Queen Mother herself seemed to have a hell of a good sense of humor. Uh, there were a lot of fun knickknacks and tchotchkes around that she always wanted to keep up, uh, even if she was not the one who put them up. But uh, one thing that really struck me as well is that Charles, now, now King Charles, he went to that castle and spent time there up in Thurso, which, to be honest, is kind of in the middle of nowhere, every single year on his grandmother's birthday. His grandmother was the queen mother, uh, and that was her home or castle. And it turns out Charles was actually there only a week or two before we toured the castle uh, and was... There, I went to the town, spoke to everybody, all the guides and people in the town that we spoke to that were able to speak with him and meet him, said that he was incredibly nice, very, very gracious, and little did they know that only a few weeks later, he would be the king. Uh, and I don't think he knew that either, obviously, at the time, given how quickly uh, the queen's health seemed to diminish. But the fact that Charles still goes there every year, that he keeps it as a home, uh, and that he does his work there, he seemed like more down-to-earth than his portrayal in the media or what I would even think of him as. So that was a positive thing, and hopefully that's the way he'll rule as a monarch. Someone who is down-to-earth, who takes his duty seriously like his mother did, and who wishes to pass on the institution of the monarchy to his, in my opinion, much more capable son, William. So with that, it's kind of worth talking about some of the reactions. Obviously, as I said, and I was quite laudatory of the Queen and the British monarchy overall. You know, not too shocking, considering that I'm somewhat conservative and that I'm a historian of the British Empire. But not all the reactions were that way, and the ones in the media 
were especially negative. Uh, so we'll get into some of that, and I'll talk you through the tropes that they used and some of the ridiculous, insane claims that have been made by people that are taken very seriously in media and academia. Let's start with the most insane stuff, which obviously is going to be coming from Twitter. So first off comes the journalist Wesley Lowry, whose claim to fame is once being briefly detained during the Ferguson riots back in 2014. Lowry says, in a since-deleted tweet, The death of a person seen as near deity by the white political ruling and media class, but who is also at one point the oppressive ruler of something like 30% of the global population, is going to provide an excellent example of the subjectivity of, quote, straight news reporting. I think the first thing to say here is that the queen was never an, quote, oppressive ruler. Uh, she was someone that didn't really have much power at all, to be honest, and was someone who was instrumental in decolonization, as I'll talk about later. The next absurd tweet comes from a woman named Ebony Elizabeth Thomas, who is apparently an associate professor at the University of Michigan Education School. It's important to remember that she does work at a school of education when you hear this tweet. She says, Telling the colonized how they should feel about their colonizers' health and wellness is like telling my people that we ought to worship the Confederacy. Respect the dead when we're all writing these tweets in English? How'd that happen, hmm? We just chose this language? Besides the fact that you can teach and speak and tweet in any language you wish, it's kind of absurd to think that someone like Queen Elizabeth, who presided over decolonization, could be labeled a colonizer if you're going to keep any sort of reasonable sense of meaning within that actual word. Our next genius take comes from Jamil Hill, a journalist at The Atlantic who covers sports. She says, Journalists are tasked with putting legacies into full context, so it is entirely appropriate to examine the Queen and her role in the devastating impact of continued colonialism. I'd love to ask Jamil Hill what continued colonialism she's talking about. The British Empire has not had any empire, or colonies since the 1960s. So many of these people are committing the fallacy of associating Queen Elizabeth herself, someone who acceded to the crown in 1952, with the British Empire from centuries earlier. It's really lazy, absurd, ahistoric, and totally misleading, which is deliberate. The next set here is a twofer. First we have one from Erica Lafitte. I don't know if I pronounced that correctly, who is a former politician and current counselor in Ontario, Canada. A place that, mind you, still has, well, now the king, as their monarch. She says, if you're lucky enough to have capital I indigenous friends, be mindful of how you're celebrating their colonizer today, and strength to indigenous people watching. And if this makes you mad, I hope you can lean into that discomfort and pick up a few good books. Libraries are great for that. The tweet that I'm going to pair with that comes from a guy named Rice Owens, who is a PhD in imperial history, also a socialist, so that kind of explains some of this. And he says, using the word indigenous for white British people is inaccurate and highly problematic. Between the two of these tweets, we get something where we're seeing how the word indigenous, which basically means that someone is naturally from a place has been totally redefined as an identity category that only applies to people who happen to have been oppressed by European colonialism. 
It's patently obvious that people who are white British folks who have had long-term ancestors in Britain are absolutely indigenous. That's completely obvious and should be to anyone who actually has an understanding of words. Unfortunately, it seems like academics and media and politicians increasingly tend to not understand words. Uh, I kind of think that's a problem. I don't know about you. But it definitely doesn't make me very happy to be in the profession of history, given how many of these people exist and are really dedicated, truly, to misleading people in search and in support of a political agenda. And now that we're done with the tweets, we need to move on to the full articles. You know, these articles all have some similarities. Basically, it's groupthink and bias. Uh, It's like reading from the exact same script over and over again. You know, such tired arguments. They're trotted out pretty much every single time someone related to any sort of negative past thing dies. Um, We have things that call them especially super evil. Uh, We have things that talk about imperialism as being purely negative and totally imposed on people to the outside. uh, That we're living in absolute bliss beforehand. Essentially the noble savage myth. Let's get into a couple of these articles. So the first one we have is from NPR. Uh, So this is a taxpayer-funded publication. It's titled, Not Everyone Mourns the Queen. For many, she can't be separated from colonial rule. Obviously, all these articles have some of the same problems that I talked about earlier with these tweets. So I'm going to talk about some of the specific problems in each one of these articles specifically. So first off, the NPR article. It only interviews and quotes people who are progressive academics living in either the United States or the United Kingdom. One, Moses Achonu, is professor of African studies at Vanderbilt. Another, Mu Banerjee, is professor of South Asian history at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And the third, Opal Pommel Adisa, is the former director of the Institute for Gender and Development Studies at the University of the West Indies. Obviously, the first two work for relatively progressive academic institutions in the United States, Uh, But the third, you hear it's University of the West Indies, someone who is probably in a colonized country. The funniest thing, University of the West Indies was actually founded by the British during the British Empire. It was founded in the late 1940s, and several of the branches were actually founded under Queen Elizabeth. So, kind of curious there to see someone who clearly has her position owing to the British Empire uh, denigrating it so harshly. And one of the main tropes in so many of these articles, and especially comes up in the NPR article, is that they're just basically trying to use the death of Queen Elizabeth, who was a good woman, to push their pet anti-imperialist projects, which are totally out of line with what people in those countries actually think. Achonu, uh, the professor of African studies, after absolutely saying how the Queen is a terrible person, the British Empire was the worst thing ever, and people really don't like her, uh, then says that the Queen was remembered fondly in his native Nigeria. Also, the article uses... uh, a key thing that you should look out for anytime you're consuming media. And that's basically looking at ambiguations. So in this article, they use the phrase, quote, many are calling for, and another phrase they use is, quote, reminded many people of. Those, when you read them, are generally calling cards for journalistic deceit. They're meant to make small groups seem large. Many can be any number of people, from three or four to a million to a billion to everyone on the planet. Many is extremely, extremely loose wording, and when people ascribe sentiments to, quote, many people, uh, as 
the former president Donald Trump often did with his many people are saying phrase, uh, basically means that it's made up, that this person thinks that, that the author thinks that, and maybe some of the people that they speak to think that. But it doesn't mean anything in terms of a broader context. The next article was a bit better, but it does use some of these same misleading tropes. This one comes from NBC News and is titled, The Queen Was Not a Gentle Figurehead for Many in Britain's Former Colonies. So obviously right off the bat you see that many phrase there. Um, that's some of the bias that's throughout, but more of it comes up later. Basically takes the most negative aspects from all the interviews they did and includes them higher in the story, while saving more positive quotes from those same folks for the end or even a paraphrase. For instance, three of the people who the article quotes higher up in it, who said relatively negative things about the Queen, or at least ambiguous ones, at the end of the article, it's revealed that those people, when they were interviewed, were literally outside of Buckingham Palace, going there to mourn the Queen. Uh, a lot of the questions seemed quite leading. Uh, so, you know, clearly someone is bringing up colonialism out of nowhere. Usually their quote is shortened by an ellipses, which are the three dots. That oftentimes means that the person may not have said that, or the lead-in to that question was definitely removed. And using that sort of misdirection uh, helps exaggerate negative feelings. Some of the people who were interviewed and were kind of played off as having mixed feelings about the Queen had said that her reign was spectacular or terrific. One journalist who was spoken to for the article from Kenya dismissed Queen Elizabeth's quote-unquote benign image as something that was a propaganda creation. At the same time, right afterward, he says, quote, I think a lot of people did see the Queen as this genial nice figure and a marker of high society, which I guess a lot of people aspire to. In Kenya, people also wanted to be part of this global movement of admiration. To me, that really does seem like the author of the piece found someone who was not at all representative of the people that were around him. If a lot of the people in Kenya thought that the Queen was admirable and her reign was good, and they found the one person who said that he didn't think it was, it may come across differently than if you actually did a representative survey of the population. And that's something that comes up again in this article. Later on, it says something about how millions of people on Twitter in India uh, said something negative about the Queen. First of all, Twitter does skew to the left in many different ways, especially in among English language users. And also, there's over a billion people in India. The fact that a million people said something negative doesn't really say anything. That's almost a blip on the radar of a country as large as India is. Another little trick that the journalist that wrote this piece uses is uh, they use adjectives like, quote, paradoxically, which are meant to cast aspersions on those who saw the queen as positive. So they might have something that is said, oh, her reign is spectacular. And then the journalist will say, that's paradoxical to the fact that she had this really terrible negative reign that was bad for all these people. That's not something that the subject of the interview actually said. Those are words that the journalist is putting into their mouth. And it's something that, again, you should always look out for when you're reading articles like this. So one more big article here to break down is from CNN. It's titled, Cloud of Colonialism Hangs Over Queen Elizabeth's Legacy in Africa. And this article is, is a bit more mixed. Uh, it does have a lot of positive things about the Queen. Again, those are hidden much, much farther down in the story and are usually surrounded by negative things. We can snag a couple of uh, other tools and tricks that the media tends to use to obscure things from this article as well. First off, it uses individual users on Twitter as a major framing device for the story. 
It's basically manufactured controversy 101. It's meant to give minor examples that people won't check or will assume are common. Essentially, kind of like the many people are saying sort of formulation. It also juxtaposes actual morning messages from leaders of post-colonial states, like the president of Nigeria, with fringe opposition parties saying inflammatory things about the queen. So right after a positive message of mourning from the Nigerian president, we get an inflammatory uh, decree against the queen by a third-rate South African opposition party. Basically, that's meant to create a false equivalence. Most people who don't follow these things closely won't really understand that the party they quote is such a second-rate party compared to the guy who's actually the president of one of the largest nations in Africa. And the piece really ends with something that I think is totally representative of, of this genre of misdirecting article. Right after some really good info about how the Queen enjoyed visiting Africa, aided in post-colonial issues, and promoted the Commonwealth consistently and seriously, it basically comes up with a sentence uh, talking about how King Charles might be good or bad at being a king. And it says, quote, Some are asking whether he will be as effective in building the organization as his mother, and above all, how relevant it still is, given its roots in empire. That sentence has two different issues in it. First off, it talks about some are asking. As we've seen, that's a great way to launder the journalist's own opinion into the piece without actually saying it's their own opinion. And the other thing is kind of combining a legitimate issue with a totally different, unrelated, much more fringe issue. So we have whether Charles will be as effective in building the Commonwealth as his mother. Totally reasonable. Queen Elizabeth was absolutely a champion of the Commonwealth. So it makes sense to ask the question whether Charles will be as good at doing that as his mother was. The problem arises in the second half of that sentence, when it talks about how relevant it still is, given the Commonwealth's roots in empire. The fact that the Commonwealth has roots in empire really has no bearing on this question at all. It's kind of meaningless. Most people don't really care. And as we'll see when I talk about the Commonwealth in a little bit, uh, there's a lot of countries that are former colonies that are very, very happy to be in the Commonwealth. So combining those two things in one sentence at the end of the article is really meant to misdirect, mislead, and give you an impression that is not the same as the one that you'd get if you were actually on the ground figuring this stuff out for yourself. And two more pieces, both from the New York Times opinion section, which is in and of itself a bit of a mess, are really what we'll finish the rest of the podcast with. These pieces are, quote, My family fought the British Empire. I reject its myths. And the other one is, quote, Mourn the Queen, not her empire. Basically, it's all the same post-colonial anti-imperialist nonsense from the usual suspects, in one case a progressive author, and in the other case a, a progressive Harvard professor. These are much more serious articles. Uh, they use some of the same misdirection, but really the issue with them is that they argue, in the educated sense, uh, I'm putting air quotes around educated, the most serious critiques against the Queen and the British Empire which preceded her. So the first thing to get out of the way is really just the defense of Queen Elizabeth herself. This one's easy. Defending the British Empire is a lot harder, but one task that I'm totally up for. So with respect to the Queen, she became Queen in 1952, in the midst of a relatively peaceful decolonization. Of course, of course, there were always issues. There were civil wars, there were partitions, there were ethnic moving between country to country. And there were some genuine abuses, like the, during the Mau Mau Revolution in Kenya, where British troops did 
torture some people uh, and did kill some in combat. But these were more the exception than the rule. When you compare the dissolution of the British Empire to the dissolution of other empires, either before or around the same time, you're talking about the World War I empires, you're talking about the French Empire, as well as the Spanish Empire earlier in South America, those were much, much more violent decolonizations. Obviously, after World War I, we had issues throughout Eastern Europe, which did fall apart in terms of the empires that were there. A lot of the changes in those national borders were something that became major issues in World War II. In the Balkans, there were several wars between Turkey, uh, which was the main successor to the Ottoman Empire, and a lot of the countries which found themselves being birthed out of the former Ottoman Empire's territory. When the Spanish Empire fell apart, for the most part at least, in the early 1800s, there were revolutions that were violent throughout all of South and Central America. That's basically how those countries got their freedom. It was in a similar way to the American Revolution, uh, where this, these various statelets and leaders fought against the Spanish crown, and eventually, very, very often, amongst one another. The bloodshed in those wars was quite significant, and would continue for quite a good deal of the 19th century. The French Empire, which fell apart basically around the same time as the British Empire, after World War II, was much more violent. You had severe violence in West Africa, as well as wars in Indochina. Uh, the Vietnam War, which the United States got involved with in the 1960s, was basically a continuation of the French War against Indochina when they decolonized the area a decade earlier. Another empire which fell apart was the USSR. Uh, obviously, that could have been far more violent. Russia itself could have collapsed into a paroxysm of violence. But since then, there was a lot of violence. Obviously, there was plenty in the Caucasus. You have Armenia and Azerbaijan, which have gone back and forth at war. You've had war in Central Asia between many of the various uh, former Soviet republics. Uh, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan are actually uh, fighting relatively recently. And you had the former Yugoslavia, which fell apart and caused severe war uh, before the Ukraine war, probably the worst war on the European continent since 1945. All these things show that decolonization is generally not a peaceful process. Closing out an empire is not something that usually happens without at least a good deal of bloodshed. But when you look at the British Empire, you don't really see nearly as much of that as you do in other empires, especially the ones that were liquidated at the same time or before the British Empire was. The Queen herself, becoming Queen in 1952, really only presided over decolonization. She did not preside over any sort of actual colonization. And the biggest argument against this anti-Queen stuff is that she had almost no power. The monarch in modern Britain is essentially a figurehead. If that, they have no power to do anything except for basically open parliament and cut ribbons in front of buildings. The way her critics talk about her is as though they think that she was an absolute monarch, a czar of the British Empire, which is just so far from the truth that it's laughable. Again, though, if you're not someone who has followed this or understands the history or structure of the British monarchy, you may not get that. You may associate a queen or a king with being someone who leads uh, everything and it has a hand in day-to-day -day decisions. In the modern British Empire, that's not the case at all. In fact, some of the most famous British monarchs, including the previous longest reigning British monarch before Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria, essentially had very, very limited power. Ever since the decline of George III into madness uh, in the late 1700s and early 1800s, 
essentially the British monarch has not been able to do very much, and Parliament has really taken over as the power behind the British government. Parliament is essentially what runs the country. It has been for quite some time. Uh, this English Civil War was basically fought over that, as was the much less bloody Glorious Revolution. Essentially, these were fights to see whether the king or the parliament would be the most powerful body in the empire. Parliament won decisively. So much so that by the time Victoria was queen, she basically couldn't get her way in anything regarding the actual government. One specific uh, anecdote with Queen Victoria really does bring this home. She was someone who absolutely loathed a man named William Ewart Gladstone. He was a British liberal politician, basically the founder and, and leader of the Liberal Party in many ways, someone who was seen as one of the key politicians of 19th century Britain. And as I said, Victoria absolutely hated him. Yet, she was forced four times, four different times, to appoint him prime minister. And the way that works in Britain is that the monarch actually has to ask you to form a government. So Queen Victoria, supposedly the most powerful monarch on, in, on the face of the planet, the Empress of India, was forced to ask a man that she despised to lead her government. If that's not a lack of power, I don't know what to, I tell you about that. Queen Elizabeth, who came to her throne over a hundred years after Victoria did hers, 1952 versus 1837, had even less power. By the mid-20th century, the British monarch was essentially just someone who was there to hold the government together as a fount of legitimacy, to basically say, okay, you're the one who can be prime minister because you won this vote. So that really had nothing to do with the queen. None of the decisions that were made during the decolonization process, essentially none of the decisions that were made at all during her tenure as queen involved her whatsoever. And that's something that I think a lot of people miss and a lot of the coverage here missed. She was an incredibly important woman, uh, an incredibly proud woman, someone who did, as I saw, as I said earlier, know her duty. But her duty was just that. It was a duty. It was a responsibility. It was not something that actually involved her exerting any sort of power whatsoever. What becomes more difficult, but again, something that I think is something that must be done, is defending the British Empire itself. Obviously, that's a lot more controversial, but I think there's quite a good case to be made that it was a net positive, so or at least that there were more positive aspects to the British Empire than negative. If you actually look at the real history, if you look at the values of the time period, and if you look at the facts of the current nations that used to be imperial territories, this argument seems to make a lot more sense. So let's start at the end. Right now, the British Empire does not exist. The United Kingdom is Wales, England, Northern Ireland, and Scotland. That's it. The British Empire once was much, much larger. But now, what we have is what's called the Commonwealth of Nations. This is a voluntary organization of former British imperial territories. But you may ask, doesn't everyone from those former British imperial territories absolutely hate the United Kingdom, hate the Queen, and feel super angry about imperialism and colonialism destroying their lives and their nations? Well, the answer is not really, no. The Commonwealth nations, there's 56 of them. 56 modern nations are part of the Commonwealth. They're from all over. 
especially in some of the places where you may expect there to be the most resistance to British imperial history. For some of the main states here, you do have the imperial dominions. So you have Australia, you have Canada, you have New Zealand. You have lots of countries like that. You have South Africa. You have places in what used to be the former Indian Raj. You have India. You have Pakistan. You have Sri Lanka. You have Bangladesh. All of these are countries that are part of the Commonwealth. Same with various countries in the Caribbean. Antigua and Barbuda. The Bahamas. Barbados. Uh, various countries. Dominica. All these in the Caribbean still related to the British crown. Countries that were decimated by slavery and supposedly made absolutely horrible by the empire are still part of an organization that essentially is its remnants. And then you have countries in Africa too. You've got Cameroon. You've got Eswatini. You have Gabon, Gambia, Ghana, Kenya. Some of the most powerful countries in Africa. You have Nigeria, which is one of the largest. You have Rwanda, uh, Sierra Leone, South Africa, as I said before, Tanzania, Togo. All these places are major, major African countries. And guess what? They are still in the Commonwealth of Nations. And these are countries that clearly see that they have a benefit from continuing positive relations with other former British Empire territories, as well as the metropole itself in the United Kingdom. These benefits are many. There's stability. There's trade. There's cultural ties. All of these things help link together these disparate areas under a similar rubric of society and civilization. Many of them share specific aspects of governance or democracy that they basically adapted from the United Kingdom model. And in fact, many of them still had the queen as their head of state. So essentially, we're still deeply, deeply directly linked to Britain itself. In fact, there's still 15 of those countries now that recognize King Charles as their head of state. Of course, you have the United Kingdom, but you have other countries. You have Australia, you have Canada, you have New Zealand, and you have a ton of small places in the Caribbean as well, various uh, island territories. These all are so linked to Britain that they still have the queen, or the king in this case, as their head of state. If they were so upset about colonization and empire, why would they do that? Most of these places are democratically run. Most of them have pretty good uh, electoral institutions, at least compared to their neighbors. And what they are doing is deliberately choosing to associate themselves still with the country that supposedly oppressed them. Now, if you're a rational person, that might not make any sense given how horrifying this oppression was, as far as you've heard. Well, that brings me to the next point. Maybe the oppression wasn't as bad as you've heard. Maybe the people who are pushing this line are misleading you. And to be perfectly honest, they are. Besides the Commonwealth itself, you can just look at the actual success of these nations that are either part of the Commonwealth or are former British Empire territories. They're usually far more successful than are the former imperial territories that belong to other European powers. These countries tend to be more stable, wealthier, and more democratic, as well as having more powerful and lasting institutions of government. 
And as I said, decolonization for Britain was a relative success compared to their rivals, especially with respect to violence and warfare. And that matters a lot, because violence and warfare in decolonization can destroy a lot of the benefits that colonization brought, uh, many of which we'll be talking about in a bit. But colonizers often will build infrastructure, roads, bridges, things like that. War destroys that. But peaceful decolonization can keep some of those benefits for the people who are inheriting it for themselves. Let's take a little aside here before we get into some of the actual responses here. You have to look at a difference in the British Empire itself between settler colonies and imperial holdings. Uh, many post-colonial and anti-imperialist scholars, like the folks that were quoted in all of the mainstream media articles that I talked about earlier, basically totally elide this distinction. But if you're a historian of the British Empire, and you're someone who's trying to understand the impact of that empire in the current day, it's a distinction that absolutely cannot be missed. Britain was not an empire that was looking to settle people in every single one of the imperial possessions they had. It just wasn't practical. In many of the areas, Europeans were not well suited in terms of climate. Or they just didn't have the room or availability of land that Europeans would have wanted to settle on. And that's not exactly the same as many of their rivals. A lot of their rivals, Germany included, uh, often were looking for deliberate settler colonies where they could send people to live full-time. Britain had those too, but they were ones that were generally older colonies that had been there for quite some time. The United States, for instance, was one of them. Obviously, we broke off, thankfully, in the late 1700s, but there were various other nations that were called the Dominions, essentially became places for settlement. And the way that those nations became independent and the way that they were treated afterward was very, very different than the other imperial holdings. Not necessarily, uh, the imperial holdings were not necessarily treated horribly, but it was definitely different given that their populations were not made up primarily of settlers from the metropole. There were four dominions in the British Empire, uh, essentially the white settler colonies that we see today. So we see Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. All of these dominions were given significant autonomy as their own national places far, far earlier than any of the other European imperial powers did. Canada, for instance, uh, basically achieved autonomy in the 1860s. Australia, New Zealand, uh, several decades after that, and same with the Cape Colony, as it was known at the time, or South Africa. All these places ended up being able to have their own elections, their own governments. They kept the queen as head of state, Queen Victoria at the time, but they were able to work within the empire uh, to create their own trade policy, their own internal policies. They just had to work together in military and foreign policy. And, and these were essentially the first nations that had ever found their independence in this way, or at least their autonomy. That was very different than some of the other places. Uh, but generally, these dominions were seen as the most desirable places to live, uh, and still to this day are seen as some of the most desirable places to live on the planet. There's currently tons of immigrants trying to go to Canada, Australia, and New Zealand. And South Africa, which is the worst off of the four, uh, doesn't really have as much to do with the Brits as it does the Boers. The uh, Dutch sort of population that was there before the British took over and remained there after the British left. Uh, those Afrikaners were often the folks who were very, very interested in setting up apartheid and segregation regimes, much more so than the British uh, colonists or the British imperial overseers who were running the, the territory. But even if we go to some of the places that were not seen as settlement colonies, 
and were more used as traditional imperial holdings, uh, either for economic reasons or strategic reasons or various others, we can still look at these, and they tend to be far more successful than many of their neighbors as well. You have India, which is the largest country in the world, and also because of that is the largest democracy in the world. It's a strong, growing economy. Uh, There's been elections consistently held since they were allowed to be independent. And many of those elections and that culture of civic continuity and of involvement comes from the British. Singapore is another one. It's basically a business emporium par excellence. At first, it was essentially a naval way station founded by the British. And now it's one of the most wealthy and uh, incredible places ever to visit. It's an entrepot of world trade. Uh, They're often really high-tech. And these are places that are really strong, especially when you compare it to some of the other places nearby, like Indonesia. Then you have Hong Kong. It's a bastion, or it was at least, a bastion of Asian freedom. Uh, Realistically, the British, I think, should have kept it. As we've seen, the Chinese have not lived up to their end of the treaty uh, that was signed in 1997, and basically have cracked down on all of the freedoms that Hong Kong was promised. But if you look at the way Hong Kong was run under the British, and now how it's being run under the Chinese, I think I have an idea as to which quote-unquote ruler or oppressor the Hong Kong people might actually prefer. And my guess it would not be the ones in Beijing. We can include nations in Africa too. Uh, Kenya and Nigeria, two of the largest and most economically prosperous nations on the continent. Uh, Both are relatively stable. I put relatively in there because Africa is generally fairly unstable when it comes to government. Uh, But those nations are more relatively stable than a lot of their neighbors are. They also have good education and relatively good government. Uh, These are places that tend to have well-educated populations. Again, all this is relative. Uh, The rule of law. And these things are important for developing a nation into what could be a future economic powerhouse. And Nigeria especially looks like it could be somewhere that, in the future, could be much more powerful and stronger than it is today. And a lot of that is being built on the back of the British Empire and what they did for these places. And before we get into the last part here, the last thing that really is a full-on defense of the British Empire, as it was in its time... I need to talk about something that really should be and is foundational to the practice of history, and that's context. Now, there's one question that you need to ask yourself anytime you're trying to make a historical comparison or gain any level of historical understanding or make any sort of historical judgment. That question is, compared to what? So if you're going to go out and say, the United States right now in 2022 is the most evil government in the entire world, you need to look at, so what are you comparing it to? Are you comparing it to any possible idealized utopian government, or are you actually comparing it to the other alternatives? Because comparing it to the other alternatives, it certainly doesn't look the same as if you're comparing it against some sort of utopian ideal. And that's the key when you're talking about history. You need to understand that you're going to be comparing things, not to modern day, but to the actual people that lived at the same time. And that's something that's incredibly important, and I find that a lot of progressives, especially progressives in the history field, tend to totally, totally miss this. They try to make moral judgments on historical acts and historical empires and events and figures using a 2022 moral framework. Not any 2022 moral framework, but the most progressive and radical one. And if you look at that, it's completely absurd. You know, if you look back from a perch 
200 years in the future, right? If I'm recording, someone else is recording a podcast in 2222, and they look back and they see us in 2022, they're going to think many of the things that we do are barbaric and outdated. Totally true. There are going to be plenty of those things. Even that the most progressive folks now do and think are great, that in the future, in the light of hindsight and in the light of technological advancements, uh, are going to look completely absurd and barbaric. And that's okay. That's what history is. Sometimes there will be progress made. That's the goal. The goal is to move towards more rights for everybody, better technology, better living conditions for the human beings. But the thing is, we can't judge people in 1830 based on the standards of 2020. It's ridiculous. You need to look at the alternatives at the time and compare like with like. It's not even like comparing apples with oranges. At this point, it's like comparing apples with spaceships. Two things are completely, completely different. So that's something that's really, really important to learn and to know when you're doing any sort of historical comparison. If you want to read more about that, I wrote a whole article called Compared to What on my blog at Rational Policy. Uh, I think to this date, it is still my most read article. And I'm very proud of that because I have to say, patting myself on the back, it's quite good. Uh, So we're going to go through right now an actual comparison of the British Empire. Again, this happened way before Elizabeth. Elizabeth, out of the picture at this point. We're going to go back to the 19th century and the early 20th century, the heydays of the Second British Empire, uh, which basically is the empire after the loss of the United States. And if you actually compare that to the alternatives and the contemporaries at the time, you'll see that the British Empire was a force for freedom, a force for good, and overall was a net positive. So I'm going to kind of go through this pretty quick. I'm not going to go into tons of examples and details and historical uh, references and anecdotes here, because that's just going to take too long. At some point, I'll probably write a book about this, because I do think it is something that needs to be done. But until now, let's let's go through it pretty quick. If the British Empire can be defined by any sort of ideology, it's classical liberalism. This is the ideology I myself basically associate myself with most. It's free trade, good government, a relatively light hand, economic development, infrastructure, and personal freedom and rights. Essentially, it's a live-and-let-live ethos about free trade, free minds, and free markets. These are all things I personally wholeheartedly support, and things that the British Empire basically instituted around the world. The century from basically the 1830s to the 1930s was the British century, and that's basically what I study the most. I study a lot between the period of, uh, I guess the French Revolution in 1789, all the way through the First World War. And if you look at that, the dominant power is Britain, they are the dominant ideology, and they basically created the world system that the United States ended up inheriting uh, supremacy of. But let's go through each one of those adjectives and things that I laid out about how Britain was a classically liberal empire and how this was a good thing for the people that it ended up controlling. First, we have to talk about free trade which is basically just allowing the free exchange of goods and services for the prices that are agreed upon between the seller and the buyer. Essentially, this is something that the British invented. Uh, Before Adam Smith, uh, the famous Scottish-British economist, uh, in the late 1700s, mercantilism was the rule of the day. Basically, what was thought is you would have your own empire, all of the colonies underneath it would be exploited for resources, and it would be a closed system 
where the only trade would happen within the empire. There would be no trade for uh, competitors outside of it. The British totally upended this, and it was something that made British producers and companies often very unhappy. Producers were unhappy because this was something that was really meant to help consumers and the regular people who would be the ones buying goods, services, and commodities. Free trade was extremely good for consumers throughout the empire, both in Britain, in places like India, Africa, and elsewhere. Because what would happen is that the best places to make or create something would be the ones that would do that. Uh, That's what's called comparative advantage, basically discovered or theorized by Adam Smith and David Ricardo. What comparative advantage is, is there might be a country like the United States that is better at making cars than, say, a country like Sudan. Maybe Sudan is better at pumping oil than the United States is. Again, these are just basic examples. Uh, It would make more sense for Sudan to focus on oil than it would for the United States to do that. And it would make more sense for the United States to focus on cars than it would oil. And so they can trade with one another so that the advantage is most maximized and you can get the most out of the resources you have. What the British Empire did was they supercharged comparative advantage. They made sure that people in various places that had the best expertise, skills, labor, and goods to make certain products. They would make those products there and then they'd trade them elsewhere. And this comparative advantage enriched everybody that was involved in the system, and especially the consumers, who would have lower prices for better quality goods. In the British Empire, products and services went both ways, both going to London and coming from. And other European governments and colonies and empires had their products allowed into British Empire territories as well. Basically, if you lived in the British Empire, you would have the choice between the vast majority of products from everywhere else in the world. Whereas if you lived in Germany or in France or in their imperial territories, you may not have that because they were much more protectionist in forbidding foreign products from coming in. That ended up being very bad for the consumers, basically the working class people in those empires, as compared to the British. Another side of that coin is economic development. The British invested heavily in the areas that they controlled, building out brand new industries, including resource extraction, as well as uh, mechanized industrial factories in many of their uh, imperial territories. These investments allowed for native entrepreneurs and markets, and the relatively light hand that the British had in terms of their government actually helped drive production and productivity. Having people in the local areas that had skin in the game were able to run their own businesses and profit from them, at least to a degree, made that economic development happen a lot faster and had a lot more buy-in from the local people. Uh, Another part of that economic development was the building of infrastructure. If anything was the core competency of the British, it was building infrastructure in their empire. They built roads, bridges, canals, railways, communications like telegraphs, and ports. All these things were improvements that still to this day help drive the prosperity and the productivity of the former British imperial territories. Oftentimes when they left these countries, they left well-oiled machines of communications and transportation, which would help the post-colonial states become economically successful, many of which they actually have. If you look at India, for example, 
the mass numbers of railways that are throughout the country and crisscross it back and forth were mostly built by the British, and the operation of those linked various portions of the Indian subcontinent and allowed for trade and for productivity to increase quite rapidly. And this is a more controversial area, but the British were actually quite good governance. Uh, they had quite a light hand in their colonies and in their imperial possessions as compared to their rivals. This is controversial because some people will say, uh, you know, you're basically saying that the people who lived in these areas beforehand were savages and they were brought civilization and civilized by the British. And I'm not saying that at all. People in those areas were people just the same as anyone else, just as the same as the British who were ended up being their imperial overlords. But not all civilizations, in terms of their technological or ideological progress, are the same. I don't think anyone would argue that the states of the Arab world and the caliphate in the early medieval period, for example, were much, much more advanced technologically and civilizationally than the European powers which they ended up fighting. I think that's quite obvious, and that doesn't necessarily say that the Europeans were savages or that they were lesser human beings, they just happened to be at a different stage of civilizational development. And that's exactly what happened with the European empires and especially the British Empire. Basically, they were coming into countries that were at a lower level of civilizational development, basically absolute monarchies, uh, small tribal states that were run by absolute tribal chieftains, warlords, things like that. Basically what the British did is they introduced institutions of government to people who really didn't ever have them before. Some places they did have them, like India was much more developed than for, say, uh, say Nigeria. But bringing these instances of good government, especially under the Westminster model and the parliamentary model, which the British government uses still to this day, was heavily influential. Now, the Westminster model tends to be much more stable. It's been basically the same since it was created in the late, seven, late 1600s. And essentially, what those institutions of government brought was a level of stability, and basically a built-in playbook for how these countries, after independence, could operate themselves. What the British also brought, and enforced consistently, was the rule of law. Rule of law is, is extremely important in civilization. Basically, we're either ruled by laws or ruled by men. Places that are ruled by men, essentially, the survival of the fittest. The person who is the strongest, has the most guns, and has the most power, is the one who can choose to enforce rules as they see fit. Rule of law says that nobody is above the law. Uh, for example, in the British colonies, oftentimes British administrators would be charged under the colonial law because of crimes they committed against locals. That's not something you always saw in other colonial powers. These lasting institutions that were built by the British uh, were also run by the British, but on a much, much smaller scale than many of their rivals. The British tended to have a quite a light hand in their colonial empire and their imperial possessions. They had a few administrators, but often relied on native elites or co-opted native elites to work with them and kind of run the system from the inside. The creation of this native elite class basically created a whole class of people that was ready to govern their post-colonial states from day one. Essentially, the British sowed the seeds of their own empire's destruction by choosing to educate and allow these native elites to run things. There are plenty of other countries and colonies where this didn't happen. Even if we go a bit later in time, let's talk about the Soviet Union. When the Soviet Union had its imperial project in Eastern Europe, 
One of the main parts of that imperial project was deliberately massacring the intellectual elite of the countries that they colonized. The reason for this was so that the Russians, who were at the heart of the Soviet Union, could exert greater power and control over their dominions. The British did not do this. Instead, what they did is they relied on locals, and they basically trained them to do the jobs that British administrators otherwise would be doing. The building of this local competency led to various leaders of independence movements who ended up creating states that still exist to this day. Again, that was something that really was not the same as many of the other colonial powers at the time. And finally, one of the things, another thing that's quite controversial, is talking about freedom and rights. Freedom and empire kind of seem like polar opposites, but in the British Empire, they really weren't. Oftentimes, the empire was described by contemporaries at the time as an empire of liberty. And yes, that might be a bit exaggerated, but if you actually look at the time and at the contemporaries, you can see why people thought of it that way. As I said, the British often allowed local autonomy. They gave rights to the people to participate in the government, even if they weren't voting. There was general religious tolerance in a lot of these areas. Uh, oftentimes, religious rituals were not forbidden, and religious conflicts in between religions were often tamped down and ensured that that did not really continue at the same level that it would in the absence of British authority. But two of the main things that the British did to improve rights and freedoms uh, really are things today that they're associated with negatively, which is completely flabbergasting to me personally as someone who knows the actual history. The first thing in that regard to talk about is women's rights. A lot of times you'll hear people uh, talk about the British Empire as patriarchal and as one that basically uh, shut down women all over the world. And that is not completely untrue. Oftentimes, during the period that the British Empire existed, uh, women were second-class citizens all around the world, including in the United States. That's not arguing that any of that is correct, but merely pointing out the obvious fact. What the British did do, however, in many of their imperial territories, was stop women from being murdered or harassed solely for their sex. For example, in India, there was a practice called sati. Basically, what they did is when a man died, his widow would be forced to burn herself alive on the funeral pyre. Oftentimes, widows, obviously, didn't want to do this. Uh, these women thought they could live on their own. They had children, they had families, they had dreams and aspirations and lives of their own. They were not simply property of their husbands to be burned upon the husband's death. This was a brutal practice that was shut down by the British at the time as an example of some absolute barbarity that they would not tolerate. If you look at post-colonial scholars today, they often rail on British quote-unquote occupiers for destroying native culture in this way. And I'm sorry, but if the native culture that's being destroyed is forcing women to jump on the funeral pyres of their deceased husbands, let's destroy that. I think that's okay. Another one that really kind of blows my mind that they don't get credit for is the British essentially abolished the slave trade. Globally. And they did it through the force of arms. Oftentimes, people associate the British Empire with slavery, and that's just incorrect. Uh, the British Empire was one of the first to actually free slaves and to stop the slave trade from continuing. The British invaded various areas of Africa, oftentimes at the point of guns, to stop these leaders from invading fellow tribes and selling their members into slavery.
The British interdicted shipments. They took over boats. They blockaded ports all around Africa uh, to basically stop slaves from being sold and transmitted across the ocean to the plantations, especially in the Caribbean and Brazil, uh, none of which, by the way, were owned by the British Empire. Not only did they abolish the slave trade by force, in many of these places throughout Africa, Central Asia, they actually abolished slavery itself. Slavery, as many people know, unfortunately something that's not really talked about as much, it's a fact of human life. It's sad, it's terrible, but throughout human history, slavery has been a constant. What's really the exception to the rule in all of human history thus far is not having slavery. And the British moralizing crusaders, who ran the empire, essentially were the ones who decided, no, this is not right. Men like William Wilberforce, as well as uh, David Livingston, both basically were people who helped shut down slavery overall. Not only did it stop slavery in Africa, it stopped slavery in Asia. As British power penetrated into the interior of Central Asia, slavery that had been going on for centuries was put to rest. Often this required force. Basically, the British sacrificed British citizens to stop the enslavement of Asians and Africans. Let's think about that for a moment. British citizens fought and died to stop the enslavement of Africans and Asians. Is that really what you learned in school? Is that what you hear from the mainstream media when they talk about colonization in the British Empire? No, it's not. But maybe it should be. I think if you look at all this information, from the actual comparisons of the other empires at the time, going all the way back to the success of the post-colonial states, the fact that Elizabeth had nothing to do with the empire, and the Commonwealth itself. All of these are strong arguments for a beneficial British empire, uh, or at least one that had a net positive effect. This is something I can talk about for days, but I'll leave it there, uh, something I'm sure I'll write about quite a bit in the future. But to end this podcast today, I did want to leave you with something totally different. Uh, in this case, a book recommendation slash review. I just finished the excellent Bloodlands, Europe Between Hitler and Stalin by Timothy Snyder, uh, who's a historian of the 20th century uh, and especially of fascism. It's quite a good book on Eastern Europe, basically between the years of 1933 and 1945. Talks about these territories as the Bloodlands, basically the place where both Soviet communism and Nazi fascism overlapped and destroyed populations in a totalitarian orgy of violence. It's a good history. Uh, this book it has lots of solid information. It's well written. Uh, it can actually be kind of tough to read at times because of the, the violence that's involved. So if you have a weak stomach or, or you're a bit squeamish about that sort of thing, I would definitely uh, take this one with a grain of salt. Maybe uh, wait a little bit to read it, but uh, it's definitely one of those where you get graphic descriptions of uh, mass killings and the Holocaust and such things. So if that's something that bothers you, I definitely would not recommend the book. Uh, if it's something that you can read and get through, it's absolutely worth the read. The one negative I would say is that there were times where I disagreed with Snyder's takes on the Soviets. Uh, I kind of thought he was a little bit too kind to them occasionally. Uh, if you read the book, he definitely has a lot of negative things to say about them, obviously, but there was a bit more positivity there than I personally would grant the Soviets. Uh, but overall, it's a good book. It's worth reading. 
Uh, I would totally ignore much of what Timothy Snyder says about modern-day quote-unquote fascism, but in terms of its historical scholarly work, this is this is quite good. So I'll leave you with that. I would recommend Bloodlands. I think it is worth the read. So thank you so much for joining me today. I greatly appreciate it. It's been wonderful spending this time with you and being able to celebrate the life of a wonderful woman, Queen Elizabeth II, as well as defend her from some of the most egregious slanders that have been put out in the past week or so since she's died. Please uh, follow me on Twitter at RATLPolicy. You can check my blog out at rationalpolicy.com. Hopefully I'll be writing for a few other outlets coming up soon, but I'll be sure to tell you all about that. Uh, Right now I don't have any more travel coming up for the next few weeks, so hopefully this podcast will be a bit more regular. Maybe see you next week, maybe the week after. So, Again, thank you so much for joining me, uh, Michael Cote, your host here at the Rational Policy Podcast. And uh, in light of the events of the week, God save the Queen. <laughs>